Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Cricket People podcast. I'm the host of the podcast, Jonathan Northall, and this week's podcast features Tino Best and Hugh Turberville. Before we get into this week's episode, I would like to tell you about the people who are supporting this series of podcasts. Series Cricket are specialists in all things cricket, including personalised teamwear, equipment and coaching. They are one of the biggest personalised teamwear suppliers in the UK, working with over a thousand clubs. The first interview this week features Tino Best. Tino played 25 tests for the West Indies, as well as 32 white ball outings. Tino was an out-and-out quick bowler, and I wanted to find out about following in the footsteps of the greats, such as Roberts, Holding, Garner, Croft, Marshall and Ambrose. Most famous for being goaded into an unsuccessful slog by Freddie Flintoff, Tino's autobiography was titled Mind the Windows, and Flintoff even wrote the foreword. I hope you enjoy the interview. And on the podcast with me is Tino Best. How are you, Tino? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. With you being known as one of the, the quickest fast bowlers around, um, I want to know what, what your secret is. What's the secret to bowling fast? Well, I think, I think when it comes to fast bowling, I think it's an attitude. I think that once you, once you have a good attitude to, to fast bowling, I think that's one of the main ingredients. Um, for me, um, you know, it, it's just going through that pain barrier. Um, I think what, what is a deterrent for, for most young fast bowlers is um, the pain. Sometimes they get a little bit of pain in the ankle, the knee, and they just stop. So you, you will find you have a little bit more medium pacers than ultimate fast bowlers, guys that can bowl consistently over 90 miles an hour. And, you know, it, it, it's an adrenaline rush, but you have to be strong um, to get through it. And, and, and my secret is, is just my attitude. Uh, my strength and conditioning when I was playing. Remember, I'm, I'm retired now, and and um, but in my playing days, you know, it was all about strengthening. It wasn't about lifting weights and and getting bulky. I think the things that turn young cricketers off or young fast bowlers off is when you tell them about the weight room or lifting weights, and uh, they think about bulking up. Now it's all about strengthening your core, strengthening your back, making sure your quads and your gluteus maximus is nice and strong, and you know you stretch a lot. I think stretching is a is a big integral part of it as well. So my secret was just strength and conditioning and just attitude. Attitude to fast bowling. Fast bowling is an attitude. You say attitude. So your attitude towards batters, were you trying to intimidate them? Were you trying to put them off guard? Or was there something else going on? Well, attitude is, is, is the mindset. It doesn't have anything to do with the batter. Um, mindset is um, the surface. Um, sometimes, most of the times when cricketers um, come to a cricket game, they see surface, no grass, they see it, um, it looks low, it looks slow, and they get, they get turned off. You know, they're not going to run in the ball as quickly as possible. But I think what has happened for me um, as a young fast bowler, I remember my coach Henderson Springer, he used to say, you know, get the pitch out of your mind, um, just run in the ball as quickly as possible because the ball, you ball quick through the air, not off the pitch. So I think that that's the attitude that guys got to got to implement. On the aspect of intimidating back, that's a whole different uh, mindset. Now, um, when I was bowling, of course you want to intimidate the back. You don't want to hurt them that they, they lose six months of the game or they, you, you, you hurt them. But you want to intimidate them and you maybe uh, bowl some sharp balls, hit them on the fingers, hit them in the rib cage. Because most of the time, most guys have um, protection. So you just want intimidate to get the wicket. And whatever you can do to make your um, team get um, a winning edge is, is all in the game. One is in the spirit of the game. It's all good. 
So is there anybody that you couldn't intimidate? Is, is there a batter or batters that no matter what you did were just unable to, you were unable to get under their skin? Um, I think I never really trade. I mean, it was, it was more of a natural instinct for me. I never really like, um, said before a game, I'm going to intimidate the Brown or, or, or Jones or, 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 or someone. It was all about like just running in and, and, and just bowling. If they play a shot, and and you know you probably say a couple of verbals to them or whatever the case may be, but it wasn't like um, something that I intended to do, like go there and just say I'm going to talk crap uh, to someone like Sangakara or, or, or anyone. It was all about just um, running in and bowling as quickly as possible. And if if you do have an exchange, you you keep it in the realms of the, of the spirit of the game, and 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 that's it. But there's a saying in cricket: you don't really speak to certain players. So regionally, when I was playing for Barbados, I'm playing regionally. Uh, someone we never tried to to speak to was a guy like Brian Lara. Mm-hmm. Um, we never spoke to Brian Lara at all because you don't want to turn him on. Once you turn him on, it's very hard to get him out. A, a guy like Wavell Hines, you never really tried to talk to Wavell Hines. Those are guys who are really mentally tough. Um, on the international level, I was with Sangakar. Never really said anything to Sangakar um, because Sangakar was one of those guys who who knew what they wanted to achieve and they were so committed and so strong willed. So he's someone that you could have never sledged. Then you had the guys that you can get on the skin. Like I always felt like I could get on the Marcus Strzokovic um, skin by telling him a lot of stuff. I, I think I get him out maybe what, six or seven times in international cricket because I gave him a little bit of chirp. So it was it was all about certain guys you can target. And and and, and Marcus Strzokovic is a fantastic opener. His record speaks for itself. Huh? But um, there's just no small guys that you can kind of gotten on the skin really easy. But that's about it. It sounds very much talking to you too now that really that that the batter was kind of irrelevant that you were just sticking to making sure that that your technique through the crease was was right and 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 everything else would look after itself would that be correct yeah absolutely you know you just want to make sure that you you um you just concentrate on your game and so, you just don't want to get in a situation that you 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 play from the team plan and you get in verbal confrontations with guys and, and your team losing. So early on in your career, as, as you were sort of breaking through and, and making your, your debut for Barbados, there were, there were some comparisons to you um, with Malcolm Marshall, I think, because of probably the physical similarities bet- between you both. That, <laughs> that, that, that must have been a pressurised situation to be compared to, to someone who was one of the greats. Yeah, I mean, when you come from the West Indies you, and you play cricket, you're always going to be pressured, especially in Barbados. Um, we just produce great cricketers, great fast bowlers, great athletes. We we just we just pumped cricketers out like 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 nothing. And um, it wasn't any pressure for me, you know. Um, I think in the beginning, you know, people would say, um, you know, you want to be you're you like Malcolm Marshall, you're the next Malcolm Marshall because of short in stature and you you bustling like him. But I just wanted to be Tino Best. I don't think it it, um, it had any negative effect. I think I thought it had a good effect. But I think that one of the things that I struggled with as a young cricketer in my early days, I never really had any proper coaching. <laughs> I never had a bowling coach, really. I mean, Wayne Daniel helped me to reconstruct my action after I played a whole test match. There was no one to help me with my bowling action until Wayne Daniel um, took me under his wing. And then the next person after Wayne Daniel was, was Otis Gibson and Vasper Drakes later in my career. So I never really had anyone who was specialising in bowling and stuff. When 
Oh, this game's going to go over the West. I thought I had a really good run. I got my first test wicket five. I actually started understanding biomechanics even more clearly uh, when Otis Gibson uh, and Basper Drace was wrong, especially Otis Gibson, who is a tremendous bowling coach. I think he's probably the best bowling coach I've ever come across. And just understand the dynamics and the biomechanics and the breakdown of fast bowling. And it was terrific. I, I really enjoyed my, 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 myself there. And also Steve Oldham from Yorkshire, playing county cricket at Yorkshire, I thought that he has a very he had a very good mechanism in place in terms of encouraging young fast bowlers. So yeah, I had a few guys who helped me, but it was really in the back end of my career, like late when it was in like my late twenties. Um, but I never had any any help between uh, the ages of nineteen and and twenty seven, I should say. Only had one person who helped me with my action, but never had anyone to really help me to understand what fast bowling is. It was just raw pace. Do you think if someone had tried to maybe correct your bowling action that you may not have achieved what you did or, or do you think conversely that you would have achieved more out of the game? Absolutely. I think if I had um, Otis Gibson like back in 2001, 2002, I, I would have easily gotten at least 250 test wickets easily. Um, you know, I'm not going to say I would have got 500 test wickets, but I think minimum, I think it would have taken over nearly 250 test wickets because... The, the, the understanding and, and, and because I had the right attitude it was just about someone helping me with my action and helping me to understand fast bowling quicker and you know even when Bennett King and those guys came down from, from Australia they had no clue they were the worst coaches I've ever come across in my life and I just think that I suffered um, not only me but Western Circuit suffered when those guys were in charge but um, at the end of the day you know it's water under the bridge and my, my encouragement for any young cricketer is, is just understanding fast bowling quicker you need to understand fast rolling um, fast. And, you know, if you can get the right people around you, I think that's going to help you um, achieve good, good goals. So you said you didn't feel any pressure with, with coming through playing for Barbados. So how did you feel with having a family member of, already of having played for the West Indies? You know, your uncle Carlisle Best had, had played. I think, I think it was phenomenal for me. I think it was, that was what made me want to play for West Indies, just... Having my uncle taking me around um, the West Indies team in the 80s and the, and the, and the 90s, uh, growing up around Malcolm Marshall as well, Devin Hayes, Gordon Greenwich, all those great cricketers, Joel Garner as a young man. Uh, I, I was always encouraged to, to, to chase after my dream. So even though I didn't play for the West Indies, the Barbados on the 15 or Barbados on the 19, or, or even the West Indies on the 15 or on the 19, I still believed that I was going to play for West Indies. And that is only because of being around um, the great cricketers and seeing how they prepared. So even though I wasn't in the the the, the, the 19 setup and, and and stuff, I knew I had to. I knew what it took to be a professional cricketer. And you know, joining the army program, the Barbados Defence Force Sports Program helped me realize that. And it just opened me up to 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 the mindset of of working harder and trying to achieve what my uncle had achieved. So it wasn't any pressure at all. Um, it was good pressure. There wasn't any pressure that was in, that affected me negatively. I just felt that you know when I played for Bar, well, play for West Indies, um, you know I tried way hard. You know I would I would I would give a, a hundred and a trillion million uh, percent, and you know I would get a wicket or two. But you know the effort was there, and I think a lot of people respect me for that. You know I wasn't one that shirked from if the pitch is slow, um, if the pitch is is, is not um, conducive for fast bowling. I always run in. I never shirked. So. I think it wasn't any pressure as a young man. I think it was more of a like me fulfilling a childhood dream of, of playing for, for West Indies. So with 
coming through and playing for Barbados and then playing for the West Indies and, and you said you didn't feel any pressure. How were you treated? Did you notice that you were treated differently? Yeah, I I think I was I think I was I wasn't treated the best for West Indies cricket. When it comes to Barbados cricket, I think it was okay. Um, because there was always a constant performance for Barbados. So I uh, I played for seventeen straight seasons. So it wasn't an issue with Barbados. The issue was with West Indies cricket. I think um, you know, selection policies, certain captains, they thought the only captain that really looked after me and wanted me to do well was Darren Sammy. So that's why I always have a real respect for Darren Sammy, who always consistently believed in me. He knew how to bowl me brilliantly. Um, he was like a Courtney Brown in the West Indies team. I think that um, playing with the West Indies team, I think that as a young man, I thought that I got, they had guys, you know, I'm not going to call any names, I had guys who were playing the IPL and stuff who would bar top me from getting an IPL contract. And they used to be happy when I wasn't playing in the IPL. And, you know, as one meeting happened, um, I, we got in an argument and I had to go to the manager with one of these said players. And he said, you know, the reason why you're not, why, why, how come you're one of the biggest bowlers in the world and don't get an a IPL deal? And he was talking about, oh, because I'm hot-headed. I said, no, it's because you guys like to bat taught me. So when a, a, a coach asks about, I want to bring in Tino Best to, to bowl quick in India, guys will say, oh, he's disruptive and he's this. So it was a very a lot in solarity in the islands against each other. And I think that hampered um, me, especially, um, in those days playing for West Indies. Uh, and again, involved um, in IPL and, and trying to, to, to push my career to T20 even more. If you look at my T20 record, I play about 50 games, 50 wickets. I think I always did well in T20 cricket. But, you know, that's the thing. That's the thing about living in a, in a, in a small island and you're always going to get insularity between the other islands. So, and, and I guess say this, you know, something about Caribbean people or people of color, I should say, we always try to stifle each other. And, and it's, it's something that's shameful, but it's just the way of life. It's just life. You've, touched on this earlier when you were talking about maybe saying a few things to batters and you've obviously mm-hmm. been known to to have had the odd sledge or two um i, I wanted to pick <laughs> on i wanted to pick on one particular incident back in uh-huh. 2014 with Shawid malik and, and his reaction yeah to, um i just wondered uh-huh. was that a surprise to you yeah and i will tell you honestly for, for you and the, the listeners on the podcast so basically uh, i was playing for saint lucia and obviously playing against Barbados, my home country, but obviously it's franchise cricket. So there's always going to be a lot of added tension, um, 25,000 people in the stadium. You know, obviously I wanted to do well against Barbados and play for St. Lucia's Dukes. And I, I remember bowling to Shoaib and he played two shots off of me and just told me, come on, bring it on. So I was like, okay, cool. So I, I ran in and I, he got too far across and the ball, I hit his leg stump. So when he when he um when he came off, I said the C word to him. I said go inside the C word. Mm. I mean, you know, we, everyone knows what the C word is. Like every cricketer says it. You know, you you get you win a battle, and you say go inside the C word. And after that, he just turned around and said, "What's your problem?" I said, "Go inside. You're out. I don't care." And, and that was it. It wasn't anything racial. Um, said because what am I going to tell someone who has the same skin color of me? Even though he's a he's from Pakistan, I I, I don't I, I don't get racial with anyone. I just said the c word, and and that I mean a c word is is a bad word, but it's a normal word that you you say in the Caribbean consistently. And, and that was it. It wasn't about going over because the thing about Barbados, and I ended up playing with Shoaib Malik for Barbados Trident as well. And you know you know laughing with them, they always said. You know, I was the strike bowler for St. Lucia, and they always tried to get under my skin. 
And if they got under my skin, they know I'm not going to bowl well. But I did bowl well against them in that game, I, I think. And I, even though we lost, and then, you know, that's it. But it wasn't about overstepping. Um, I, th- I don't think Shreve did anything wrong neither. I think, you know, bring some excitement to the game. You know, it's a passionate game. He's a passionate cricketer. I'm a passionate cricketer as well. And it wasn't anything. I, I then I remember my agent saying that his wife said I said something racial. And it wasn't anything racial. It was a C word. And I don't think that, you know, it was blown out well on her part, not on the part of the CPL, because it was it was done and dusted. Me and Shreve got fined. So you, you used the word hot-headed. Do you, do you feel that maybe if you hadn't have been hot-headed, that you, you would have been more effective in cricket? Or do you think that's just part of who you are? It, well, I would go 50-50. I, th- I don't think I would change. I think my attitude and my mindset of playing the game that I love, I play hard. And, um, you know, if some people, if I rub people the wrong way, that's their business. You know, I, I never disrespected anyone. Um, and I'm one of those guys that aren't going to gonna stand up and be bullied. I'm, I'm one that's always going to stand going to stand my ground and, and hold firm. I don't care. You could be as big as Goliath. I can always stand my ground. But it, it, I think maybe if I had a good bowling coach around me, maybe um, that could have worked. But I always felt I played cricket with so much passion and so much energy. And, you know, like that was the way, bowling fast was a way of me getting out a lot of, 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 of negative energy as well. And, um, you know, some people might say, you know, I should have been a boxer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, no, 50-50, I think it's a 50-50 thing. You know, some, I think sometimes I did overreact. I would, I would put my hand up and say that. And sometimes I could have been calm. I would have probably get more as well. And then sometimes, you know, I, I was the right man for the job. It was aggressive. It was good. So, so, you know, half the world hate me, half the world love me. I think that's where you want to live. You don't want everyone to love you. You know what I mean? What love got to do with it, as Tina Turner said, you know? Yes. You want people to respect me. Yeah, so I think I got a lot of respect from my peers. And people that I played against and played against and played with always going to see me and give me a shit hand or hug me because they know that I always bring it 100 all the time, 100% every single time. So, um, you know, I may not have uh, 300 test wickets, but I know at the end of the day, there are all guys that will go in the trenches with me for war. Simple. Well, I can't talk to you without asking you about that incident with <laughs> Freddie Flintoff. You, you, you knew it was coming to some point in, in the interview. I, I, I can't not mention it. Obviously, you you used that Mind the Windows comment as the title for your autobiography. I just wondered, does that moment reflect your outlook on life, Tina? Because having read your book, it, to me, it sort of seemed to sum you up. Would you, would you agree with that? Uh, not really sum me up. I would say that basically... The fledge happened like um, I always see it as a big joke. I think it was it was funny. Uh, the thing about it is that I ran into ball at him in Trinidad in Trinidad without the ball, and I knew he wanted to get me back. So uh, when we were playing it at Lords, I I was injured and I had a real I had a, a stress fracture in my back and I didn't really want to bat for too long. And you know Ashley Jones, I didn't really Ashley Jones at all. <laughs> you know and. And look, Freddie was, was was telling me some stuff. I was saying back some stuff to him, but obviously that was muted. You know, I, I was say he knew what I said to him, and he just keeps saying it. And you know, and and later in the over, I just tried to hit him with the, the part, and 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 I got stumped, and and everyone laughed. You know, and I I said for a long time I'm gonna get back um, at England holistically, and then I fell five short of, of scoring a test hundred against him. So I think it it is fifty fifty now. I don't think that I think that the monkey's off my back. So I, I just try to use that in a positive way. You know, people see me mind the winners. I tell them, you know, don't forget the 95. 
and they laugh. So it's it's it's, it's humorous. It's, 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 it's you know it's, it's it's cool. I don't have any issue with it. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think it sums me up as a person. I think it the if you really interrogate the, the the book, I think that you know as my good friend George Dorbell said, you know look, you you is an incredible read. Pierce Marnus is an incredible read. Um, to, to 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 see where you come from, see what you're being through with your father. Me, and my father being addicted to crack cocaine for 25 years, and 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 me turning out to be an international cricketer. I think that's one hell of a try. Uh, never being involved with drugs, never had any problems with the with the police, never been in jail, and have two beautiful kids, have a 19 year old son, a seven year old daughter. I think that's an incredible uh, accomplishment. Uh, not to follow in my father's footsteps. Would you do the same thing again, Tino? Because uh, the, the reason why I said I, I th- it's for me it sums you up is because you you have always been honest, you've always been consistent. You you knew they were trying to get under your skin, but you still did it anyway. And that that for me is what what Tino Best is about. He's congruent. That there's no I'm not. You're not going to be led by other people. That was when I said, "Do you think it summed you up?" So that that. So that's my my question. Would, would would you have done? Oh, okay, fair enough. Would you do it again? Yeah. Or... Yeah, of course. And, and I would I I would do it again. And I would be the same way, still passionate. Maybe in certain situations, I would I would pull back a bit, but I will always be who I am. Um, you know, but I don't have any regrets, bro. I I, I don't live life with regrets. And you know, look, I I just went into I go into the schools in Barbados and stuff, and and the Caribbean, and do some work with some children. And when they see me, they say, you know, Tino Best. You suppose so fast. Oh my God, how do you both so fast and you're so small? And that is the legacy. I mean, look, Marco Marshall has his legacy. Joe Garner has his le- legacy. Fidel Edwards has his legacy. I have my legacy. And when I tell kids about where I come from or what I've been through, it, it even warms them more to me. I think that, you know, sometimes we as human beings, we judge people uh, by the cover and not by who they are as human beings. And I think I'm one of those guys. I don't mind being judged. I am good. I, I, I have no regret. I don't mind people judging me. But if you interact with me and you know and you understand me and you speak to me, then I think that's when you're going to respect me and you're going to say to me, um, you know, Tino, you're one hell of a human being. And, and that's what I want. You know, I just want my children to love me. And my daughter say every day, you know, Daddy, you're the best. Daddy, I love you so much. My son said the same thing. So it, it's all about just building a legacy for them and understanding that, you know, you respect people. But at any day, don't be a follower. Always be a leader. My final question for you, Tino, is what does the future hold? Is it in cricket? Is it outside cricket? What do you want to do? Well, you know, my, my two passions is, is one is, is commentary. absolutely love commentary, being getting some opportunities. But I know it's a very competitive <laughs> uh, environment. Um, but personal training, um, strength and conditioning, absolutely love strength and conditioning. Um, I will, that's, that's my passion. Um, to be get a degree in strength and conditioning, to be a fitness trainer, to to help fast bowlers, to help young athletes with strength and conditioning. I think that's my number one passion. And then obviously commentary. Absolutely love commentary. So those are two things I'm really passionate about. And those are two things that I see myself doing for a very long time. Um, other than that, I think that I've done um, really good in terms of cricket and and building a name for myself, a brand for myself. So um, when people see the Tino Best brand, they know that he's about hardworking. He's not gonna uh, Mickey Mouse. He's not gonna come and 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 I should say soft foot you. He's gonna come and and really uh, work you hard and 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 he understand what being a champion is. And you know, at the end of the day, I just want people that are associated with me or or interact with me to be to be winners. And if I can help them to fulfill their potential and to go on to greater things, I think that that is 
what my passion is, is clearly about right now. Well, Tino, it's been an enjoyable conversation. I've enjoyed your, your, <laughs> your honesty and wish you all the best with your, your commentating. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, cheers, my brother. And God bless, man. Serious Cricket, the UK's number one cricket specialist for personalised teamwear, equipment and coaching. Find out more at seriouscricket.co.uk and use promo code POD for 10% off your first order. Hi, I'm Tino Bess and you're listening to the Cricket People podcast. The second interview of this podcast is with the Cricketer Magazine's Hugh Turberville. I wanted to interview Hugh to find out how the magazine is pulled together and how Hugh fits into the process. Also, Hugh had written some books on the ashes and I was interested to find out about those too. Let's hear what he had to say. I'd like to welcome Hugh Turberville, Managing Editor of The Cricketer, to the podcast. Hi Hugh. Good afternoon from in UK. First question I'd like to ask you is, what does a managing editor do? Um, I, think, I think the listeners um, would like to know what you do with the Cricketer magazine. Well, that's political, um, <laughs> getting into dodgy territory there. No, I mean, I mean I, Simon Hughes is our editor and he's, you know, he's out and about. We know he's on telly and, and the radio a lot, don't we? And um, so, but I'm, I'm here in the, in the office sort of controlling controlling running the magazine on a day-to-day basis sort of looking looking after the budgets and in charge of the magazine coming out really but simon obviously brings a lot of editorial focus to it and lots of ideas we have regular meetings but really i'm i'm the nine to five nuts and bolts man really who sort of um pulls it all together bit of a bit of a head of production and planning bit of a chief sub-editor bit of a writer proofreader that, you know, all sorts, really. And, but we've got several, three or four people contributing ideas and so on. How much of your time is writing, would you say, Hugh? Half, maybe, uh, I think. I mean, because I, I, I do a lot of writing for the website as well. Cause, I mean, I don't, not a great imperative to do that, but I, I really enjoy, just love, I love writing. So, yeah, I would say, well, 40% writing, 40% production work on the magazine and 20% commissioning and, meetings and ideas and things so yeah something like that yeah um i mean the magazine's been around since 1921 obviously almost come yep. up, coming up to to the to the century that must be quite... yeah absolutely so yeah you know, I mean, some that... debate about whether 1920 is the is the 100th year isn't it but i suppose we'll, we'll probably mark the centenary in in um 2021 i mean that, that must yeah. be quite a, a responsibility uh, for you and and the staff for a, a magazine that's obviously seen so highly and has been around for so long, um, for for you guys to to keep the tradition on. Definitely, I mean, walking on the shoulders of giants, aren't we? With Helen Warner founded the magazine, and then um, just to name a few, I mean, um, it's Christopher Martin Jenkins and E. W. Swanson, and so forth, and, and then lots of brilliant journalists behind the scenes like um, Andrew Longmore, who unfortunately died a month or two back. But he was assistant editor on the mag under CMJ. Um, now I've got Simon as editor and me as sort of his henchman. And, um, yeah, I mean, there was a sort of grey area a few years ago when magazines merged. But, but, but um, yes, yeah, so the, the cricketer sort of, yeah, endures, yeah, Absolutely. 
On the subject of Simon and the, what does he actually bring to the magazine? Now that sounds like a lady question, and and it, and it certainly isn't you. I just wondered, you know, Simon's experience, and as you say, TV experience. What 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 does that value? Does that add to to the magazine and, and the website? Well, he's got clout in the industry, but what, the thing with Simon is that I think he's got three things that he should be enormously proud of. One of the, one is he's a very good cricketer. He was probably a bit unlucky not to play for England, particularly when caps were being handed around like confetti in the 1980s. But first half of his career, he was a really good county bowler, wasn't he? Mike really rated him really highly, and he was unlucky not to win an England to win an England cap. So he was a really good cricketer. But he he's also a brilliant writer, isn't he? I mean, anybody who's read a lot of hard yakka says that it's one of the best cricket books ever. So he's also a brilliant writer. I mean, the name just, he's done dozens of books, but I mean, that one, that's the one that everybody cites. Um, but, and then he's, he was, I think really, he was the inventor of the TV analyst role, wasn't he? I mean, we've, we've got a feature in the magazine just out, the August copy of the Cricketer, 20 years since Channel 4. And he, uh, he invented really that analyst role of somebody sitting in a truck behind the scenes, dissecting the game. Um, and it's been imitated by lots of people. I mean, I noticed even last football season, only only then did Sky Sports stop having an analyst. I think they've got they generally have Jamie Redknapp or Jamie Carragher up in the gods doing the kind of analyst role. But I mean, in, in the cricket, they they have the third man, which they've had for a couple of years now. But um, so yeah, I think he he um, did all the sort of jargon busting and everything, didn't he? So he's he's got a very fertile um, imagination. He's got very um, he's brimming with ideas. So. You know, we see lots of him in the office and he, he comes in and out and um, he's been working at the World Cup in doing in the van um, analysing. Um, you, you might not have seen him on the screen, but he's been contributing a lot of ideas to them, to them and so forth. So, yeah, he just brings ideas and, and he sort of knows everybody in the game, really. So, yeah, lots brings a lot to it. Yeah, cause, uh, it's interesting the point you make about Simon and, and his innovation because it seems to me that innovation now is one of the things that's going to differentiate you look at people like Creekvis bringing something new to the game, um, and I just wondered, what do you think is going to be the next new thing that, that's going to really going to di- again differentiate between normal cricket writing and, and, and that added value? We do have stats and analysis in the magazine, but um, I suppose what we pride ourselves on more is, is great articles by sort of great writers, um, quality of writing really. Um, so it's important in a monthly magazine, particularly one like the Cricketer with our reputation and so forth, to use the best writers and to make sure that they've they're given as much time in their run up to produce the most well crafted and informative and knowledgeable articles. So that's where we're coming from with it. I mean, in terms of websites and stats, I mean we, we own Cricket Archives, so that's brilliant on the um, on the recreational stats, isn't it? And the, yeah. the county cricketers. Um, Quick info have the internet. You can call up, um, say, for instance, Liam Plunkett's 89 ODIs and see what he did where and when. But with Cricket Archive, we've you can call up um, Liam Plunkett's games for Durham and see what he did, etc. So there's all these sort of websites with all these stats. And, and as you say, there's Quick Quick Viz and, and other things. We've, we've got a thing called the PPI Player Performance Index, which evaluates all the um, T20 players around the world and puts it in context of their performances in the big bash and the 
uh, IPL and, and so on and rec grades and grades internationally and club and puts it all together. So, I mean, it's incredible the amount of stats, isn't it? I mean, I used to sort of dabble in stats and when I worked for the Sunday Telegraph, I'd, you know, you'd throw in the odd, you'd do a piece, wouldn't you? A 600 word piece and you'd throw in the odd stat here and there. But, you know, it's almost like fighting a, um, a Gatlin gun with a, with a, with a, pea shooter now isn't it i mean <laughs> with quick quick info so quick fears and all, and all these amazing websites just have extraordinary stats don't they about yeah where the ballers are delivering and how many how many kilometers they, they cover in the game and it, yeah i mean i, I can't i mean if I, I i if i if i knew where it was going next i'd probably be a rich man but yeah. um no, I think I think it's the a valid. publishing. We're always looking to sort of to innovate. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I think it's a valid point you make about that. that yeah, the, the quality of the statistic that you know average now is just one way of looking, and you know, you know, my own writing to try and find different angles. It's it, it's yeah. It's 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 not it's not that easy to do because you don't want to be reproducing what other people do. Um, so I, I guess really sort of moving on then, if we look at the, the, what the magazine does compared to what the website does. So there's a clear separation by the sense with the magazine, probably longer form articles dealing in, in yeah. detail. Whereas the website, it's you know, quick and dirty, I guess, up to date, constantly moving. So how do you how do you hmm. manage that as an organisation, being able to to sort of cover both ends of the scale? Well, we've got two. We've got Simon, me, and James Coyne are sort of dedicated on the magazine, but. We, we will write for the website and, and the, the people on the website, Sam Moorshead, Nick House and Nick Friend, dedicated to the website, but chip in on the mag. So we all like to write for the various things. So, I mean, for instance, I went to interview Liam Plunkett yesterday in Dulwich, at Dulwich Cricket Club, and there was an embargo on that at 6pm. So I, that, that won't hold for the magazine. I was in a huddle with other journalists. So, um, yeah, I wrote that for the website. You, you can see that on the cricketer.com now. So... It's those kind of pieces, isn't it? But we're, we're looking to hold things back if we have one-on-ones with people. And um, Liam, I mean, it was very interesting what Liam Plunkett said yesterday, but I don't know, I might take him to, I think Simon's to take, you know, talking about maybe doing a piece with him and you maybe get him to, but to, to explain how he bowls his cross seamers or whatever, you know, just providing some insight. We're just, we're, we're looking to produce, provide unique content um, for our reader, you know, to justify their monthly fee or their their subscription and we're offering a subscription at the moment £20.19 special for the World Cup so yeah looking to give the readers sort of value for money and and tell them something they don't they didn't know and that they can't get on you know all the websites that are around yeah uh, interesting you pick up on the World Cup I mean I'm, I'm guessing you guys coming out of out of a cricket World Cup straight into the ashes you, firstly, you must have so much content. It's about filtering through and, and, and looking for the different angles. But secondly, it must be long hours at the moment covering the amount of cricket that's available. And, and I, I guess the, the way cricket is going now, it's, it's not becoming seasonal. It's, it, it's all year round. It's, a, it's almost a 365-day game. Yeah, but this is a especially busy summer. I mean, it's, you know, it's the first one since 1975 that the World Cup and the Ashes have been in England. Um, we were talking about earlier, but the World Cup and Ashes were in the same winter, weren't they? 2013, 14, was it? Was it 2010, 11? 2010, 11. Yeah, that winter 2010, 11. There was the Ashes down under plus the World Cup. Yeah, it rolled, it rolled the other way. It? The first time in it, 
Yeah. I mean, it's made me laugh because they said, oh, we're not going to do this again because it's too busy. And then in 2019, we've got the Ashes for the World Cup in England. But um, and, and that explained why there was um, Ashes in 2013 and 2015, didn't they, because of all that. But but anyway, I, I digress. But um, yeah, well, I think we think we're kind of thinking we're half we're halfway through now with a phenomenally busy summer. We're we're catching our breath and 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 waiting for the Ashes. I, I don't think the Ashes will be take up such a strain on on the whole entire team. Perhaps I don't know. Um, you tend to have people at the game reporting on the game, don't you? And we'll all be we'll all be watching avidly, but. Um, the World Cup was particularly, I mean, it was um, six weeks, wasn't it? Six weeks, a game a day, sometimes two games a day. So, yeah, um, the, the Ashes are a little bit more measured, but um, it's a really congested Ashes. It's five five matches in seven weeks, which is just about the most congested Ashes ever, and also one that goes later into the summer or into the autumn than ever before. But, yeah, so we, in the mag- terms of the magazine, we had a really massive preview issue for the World Cup slightly halfway house magazine in between because we were sort of stuck in a limbo a bit there. But the one that's just coming out next week is the August issue and we've got absolute stacks on on the World Cup. So I think 45 pages we worked out. A bumper 140-page issue. So, um, yeah, 45 out of 148 pages on the World Cup and a 20-page Ashes preview. So, so yeah, we've been busy. Readers are going to get value for money in the August edition. It's a really bulky bumper issues full of really good stuff yeah i'm really proud of it we're all really proud of it yeah we've got vic marks and gideon hay writing for us about the ashes there's the channel four feature mark nicholas my captain ian smith all reminiscing about that and we've got everything you need on the world cup really so team by team analysis england match by match analysis england player by player analysis um so yeah full of chock-a-block with stuff good stuff (laughs) Moving on from the magazine and, and sort of exploring your experiences a little bit, Hugh. How did you get into writing? How, how, how have you got where you are today? Um, I just, I've always wanted to be a sports journalist since I was a kid. Um, I used to make my own newspapers and hand them out to the neighbours. Hugh's News. Um, every 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 um, academic choice was always with a view to being a sports journalist. So I did. English and history A-levels, I did uh, English and sports science degree. Uh, I got into local papers, did four years in Ipswich for the East Anglian Daily Times. Uh, went like Dick Whittington to London to try and make my fame and fortune. Got into Telegraph, spent about 15 years there on off daily and Sunday Telegraph. Did the Express, the Mail, wrote for whoever I could, really, the Evening Standard. And then um, luckily enough to come here four and a half years ago to the cricketer. Which was a change of pace because it was I was used to working on daily paper and then suddenly monthly. Was that difficult to adjust to to begin with? Quite nice actually. I welcomed it. Um, when I was at the Daily Telegraph, I used to go in and there was a sixteen-page blank canvas every night, and we used to somehow fill it. Um, it's quite nice just to sort of take your time a bit more now and and going back to what we were talking about earlier, just produce those sort of think pieces that have just got a little bit more time to sound a bit sort of um poncy but sort of just like diffuse or whatever infuse is it like a good cup of tea sort of. <laughs> okay. um yeah so was he always cricket or is there other sports that have, have floated you boats as well no i like football and um i used to report on football for the daily express and the daily telegraph yeah but cricket- not never really the big time champion 
championship stuff, really. Cricket's my number one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So well, I have got a soft spot for Liverpool Football Club. <laughs> oh, oh well. <laughs> but cricket's my number one sport. Yeah. Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on from that then. Um, are you a Villa fan? Are you? I, I'm a Villa fan. Yeah. I'm, I, I won't apologise. You, you sound like a Villa fan. Yes, it's, it's the accent gives it away, doesn't it? Really. Um, I'm not going to apologise. Yeah. All I'll say is I know suffering. I I remember cricket in the '80s, and I'm a Villa fan. Those two things together. That that's that's really. Yeah, no, Villa. I don't mind Villa. Yeah, good side. Anyway, European Cup, 82. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That was that was our last great time. Anyway, it's not about me. It's all about Hugh. Hugh, you, Hugh. Okay. Um, I, I, I guess then let's talk a little bit about your cricketing exploits because um, you, you, I would imagine you turn your arm over or, or have a bat at weekends. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I wasn't brilliant, but I, um, I was captain of my school, Woodbridge in Suffolk, and I played through the age group teams for Suffolk and Heady Heights of Suffolk twos, uh, a couple of games, and I was captain of my club side in Woodbridge, Woodbridge Cricket Club for four or five years. And but journalism has taken over in the last um, fifteen years or so. I've just run my own kind of recreational team that has fizzled out a bit now. But um, yeah, that's it really. Uh, but I bat, I'm a batsman and the bowl a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think your claim to fame is being run out by Mike Gatting in a charity match. Yeah, that was at Bury St Edmunds. I also um, dropped, or didn't even get close to this horrible steepling catch. I can't, I don't remember who it was batting. So I, I was playing for Essex against Middlesex. So it must have been I bowled at John Carr, but and was run out by Gatting. I don't think I was run out. The umpire gave him out. I was just kissing up to him. I think um, uh, didn't get many runs. Uh, yeah, it was quite a good fun game. I bowled at Darren Robinson, Essex and Leicestershire when I was playing for Suffolk against Essex. Um, yeah, I don't think there not many other claims to fame, but uh, yeah, but a few brushes. <laughs> <laughs> you've also written two books on the Ashes. You've co-authored another. Um, I guess what I'm looking for is: is there a next book on on the in the pipeline? And if so, is it going to be away from the Ashes? We're going to think about doing a, a cricketer book on the century, century, you know, cricket century, the cricketer. Probably we're thinking about doing that maybe in 2021. So yeah, but I mean, I enjoyed doing my book, the toughest tour about Ashes Away series since the war, and then yeah, I was I was more the sort of co-author, editor of that our oh, Ashes anthology, the Cricketer Ashes anthology. So there were six of us on that, but pulling it all together, yeah, yeah, I hope so. One day, yeah, maybe do some more books. It's great fun, yeah, yeah. I I guess it's might have the fiction in me one day. <laughs> I, I guess it's finding the time with the, everything, the cricketer and home life and all those kind of things. Yeah, it's pretty pretty hands on at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm quite happy. And any, any cricket ideas I have, I'm, I'm, I want to put into the mag- magazine or website really now. So yeah. From going to your experience of the Toffees tour, which um, was kind of you in your own right, I, I, I guess. What were the what were the highlights and, and lowlights of of writing your book? <clears throat> the highlights were, were talking to 21, I think, famous cricketers. Um, who played for England, going round to Alec Beds's house in Woking, the house that he built with his brother Eric, um, sitting there in front of the fireplace, and him reminiscing and him showing me the ball they bowled with it. I think at Brisbane in forty-six-seven, no seam on it, and um, meeting Mike Deness in Starbucks in Victoria, and him talking about seventy-four-five, seventy-four-five tours. He had a fascinating story to tell about. He got very ill and they found out he had a 
third kidney and, and all this sort of stuff and, and some hilarious stories about how they didn't Alec Pedza tried to stop him phoning home every night um, it was quite a t- sort of tight re- financial regime then um, so yeah just meeting, meeting those great characters really um, I think I spoke to, certainly if I didn't speak to Graham Gooch then I certainly have subsequently loved, loved chatting to him loved chatting to David Gower I got an interview with Gower in this magazine coming out the August one um, Chris Board, yeah. So it's me. For me, it's me. My heroes of the eighties, really. I love um, Gower and Gooch, my two favourites, and I've love interviewing Lamb and Bob Willis. Um, but yeah, so meeting the meeting the men and and just the, the, the discipline of sort of just sitting down and writing. I can't remember how many words it was now. Um, probably two thousand per chapter about 16 chapters I think it's 30,000 30, words probably um, the low the low points I suppose were I suppose what do they talk about the the, the, the low point when you get in the marathon when you say is it 17 miles or something the wall is it called yep. or something so I, I probably yeah when I got about three fifths of the way through it probably starting to hit a little bit of a wall and my wife getting a bit annoyed to me up in the study yet again when dinner and baths for the kids were, were taking place and so on but um and that, there was a bit of scepticism, I think, from family members that were, you know the book would come out. But um, I think they were pretty chuffed when it did. Yeah. They certainly enjoyed the the launch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. From my own experiences, I, I totally get you. Um, you know, it's I, a labour of love, isn't it? it a bit? Yeah. yeah, it's it's as you say, you, you're at your day job, you've got your family, and then then you've got to start writing. And some sometimes it flows. And sometimes it doesn't, and it's when it doesn't I found was particularly yeah. difficult. That's just a little bit disappointing. It's it's your life, isn't it, for nine months, mm. and you you live and breathe it, and then it comes out, and there's a little bit of an anticlimax, I suppose, afterwards, as after it's come out, and it's a little bit sad, really, that books don't cricket books don't sell as well as they used to, isn't it? Um, I think you know I was sort of talking about this with somebody the other day that I think Martin Nicholson, Martin Nicholson's book, one book of the year, but didn't sell that many four or five thousand i remember talking to jonathan trott and his book was quite well acclaimed you know he'd written it with george de bell and again you know these things don't sell phenomenally well unfortunately anymore but um there's some fabulous books on cricket coming out that that come out but um yeah they get the acclaim but people unfortunately aren't buying books in the way they were in the past no that's that's a shame because you know some really talented people pushing content out. I'm, I'm certainly excluding myself from that comment, but it's, it's a shame. Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. You know, um, you know, Derek Pringle's book, I would imagine is going to, has done really well. I think Mark's book is probably going to do really well, but, yeah. but, but they're few and far between. And that, that's quite sad. I'm sure that, well, I read Pringle's book. It's great. I'm sure that the, the books will, they're great books. And I'm sure They'll do relatively well, but but but, but unfortunately, they don't sell as well as they did twenty years ago. I suppose but you can just see on the train, can't you? That on the way into work, that people are looking at their phones. So if they didn't have their phones to look at, they'd be looking at newspapers and books. So it's, yeah, it's not difficult to to see, is it? But there is a renaissance a little bit for for print and cricket. magazine is still selling well, and we're holding firm. And we've had some good ideas as to how to keep um, subscribers on board and and get old subscribers back so if you haven't seen the magazine for a few years then please come and have a look at it again because i think we like to think we're back on form certainly yeah i mean i i subscribe digitally so 
I've been seeing the, yep. the, the content that you guys are pushing out. And, you know, anybody who's listening to the podcast who knows about the magazine and has thought about it but hasn't gone ahead and get it, I can just say, go and try it. It's like, it's like my book, your book. Just go and try it. If you don't like it, you know, don't, don't do it again. But, um, you know, I, I think when people criticise without really knowing the product, um, that, that, that's certainly the most frustrating thing from, from my perspective. Yeah, well, somebody I mentioned didn't mention earlier, which I probably should have done, is John Stern, who um, I think is probably the best, not including Simon, because, you know, I can't say him because he's current, current, but before Simon and, and me and James Coyne and all the people who are working on it now, but before that, I think John Stern was the best sort of modern day editor of the magazine or the magazine in the form that it was in at that, that time. It was called The Wisdom Cricketer, if I'm honest. Um, so he 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 was the um he was the he's the best modern day editor yeah so and 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 we look at him as a template we look at that magazine as a template so we've gone back to having a every county and every month now and 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 giving the readers what they want really we know they want lots of county cricket um so we give it to them you know it's not a stubborn sort of thing oh we're not giving you that county cricket no died in the wall or whatever so yeah we give the readers what they want. My final question, Hugh, is. What's left on your cricket bucket list? What haven't you done that you want to do? Any grounds that you want to visit or um, places you want to play, books you want to read? What's on the list? Weirdly, I've never been to Worcester. Um, I suspect that I'd probably be a bit disappointed now because it's probably not as nice as it used to be. I don't know. But I've done, I think I've done every county ground except Worcester. So <laughs> I'd like to go there. I'd certainly like to do another Ashes tour. Um, because I went as a fan in 94-5, so I'd like to go to... Um, I went to Brisbane, MCG and MC, SCG, but I'd like to do Perth and Adelaide. I'd like to go and see a test match in India, and, and maybe maybe a test match and an IPL match or something to contrast that. Um, I haven't got too many playing ambitions now, I don't think. I <laughs> um, enjoy playing with my son. We're, we're going on tour late in the week, so that's great fun. I'd like to see him enjoy cricket. Um, my daughter plays a bit as well, actually, so I'd like to see her get enjoyment out of it. So, uh, yeah, another book would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, I'm not sure what on yet, but that would be nice, definitely. Yeah. Well, Hugh, I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to chat today. Really enjoyed it, and good luck with the book, whatever the, the final topic is you decide, and please keep pushing out the good content that the cricketer does. Really, It's really enjoyable, so thank you. I hope that you've enjoyed this and the other podcasts. I very much enjoyed speaking to Tino, despite the ridiculous time difference between the Caribbean and Australia. If you haven't read his autobiography, put it on your reading list. Tino elaborates on many of the issues that were raised in our interview, and has plenty of pages to explain in detail. Hugh was a great guest, and I found his comments and writing were very similar to many of my own. And also, I resisted the urge to pitch articles to him. Maybe I missed a trick. I definitely recommend his book, The Toughest Tour, which examines England's Ashes Tours to Australia. Please make sure that you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast in your preferred podcast app. If you have any feedback about the podcast, please contact me via Twitter or via my website. On Twitter, I am at Jane Orthall and the podcast is at cricket underscore pod. Please give both counts a follow if you aren't already. My website is jonathanorthall.com if you want to email me instead. Please go back and check out earlier episodes if you haven't already. And thanks for listening. <laughs>